Good morning, everyone. We'll be doing the scripture reading today. It comes from 1 John 3, 11 through 18. <clears throat> For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We shall love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has, entered, has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? <clears throat> Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. How many of you remember this song, Love is a Many Splendored Thing? It came out in 1955 when it debuted in the movie by the same name. How, how, how many saw that have seen the movie? I haven't yet. Okay, so a couple. Good for you. I'm going to have to look it up. Apparently, it won an Academy Award for Best Original Song in the next year, 1956, and was a theme song from 67 to 73 for a soap opera by the same name. How many of you remember the soap opera? I had no clue that it's probably a good thing. Have you ever really listened to the words? It goes, love is a many splendored thing. It's the April rose that only grows in the early spring. Love is nature's way of giving a reason to be living. The golden crown that makes a man a king. Lost on a high and windy hill in the morning mist, two lovers kissed and the world stood still. When our fingers touched, my silent heart has taught us how to sing. Yes, true love's a many-splendored thing. Interesting. This morning we're going to be talking <laughs> about love. And as you know, as we've been going through the epistle of 1 John, the theme that runs all the way through the entire letter is the identifying marks of, two, of true Christians. This ought to be an encouraging letter for us, not a discouraging one. In our culture today, if we're not in God's Word regularly and stand on it as our bedrock of truth is so easy to get swept away by the shifting sands of the world's truth, is it not? This is John's concern as he writes. In the midst of all the uncertainty of the world, John brings us back to God's certainties that we are to hang on to and upon which we are to stand. And as we come to verse 11... 2.18 today, which Eric read for us, we come to the subject of love, and it's actually more a test of love, or the true mark of love. And it's here that we find one of John's key determining factors to identify true Christians. 
Last week we talked at length about one of the great moral tests that John puts before us as Christians, and that was the fact that we are, if we are truly born-again Christians, we will not go on practicing sin. That's no longer who we are. You know, it's interesting as a side note, as I was thinking about this, Satan does not like the phrase born again. Doesn't like it because we are born, reborn from the very seed of God that is imperishable. We talked about that last week. Satan can't destroy it. Satan has worked hard, however, and has, a do, has done a pretty good job to take that phrase out of our vocabulary. How often do you hear people talking about being born again? Not so much lately. Why not? Ah, faster sounds old. Sounds fundamentalist. It's just kind of embarrassing now. Folks, Jesus himself said, you must be born again. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed about it, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we saw last week that that it's the very seed of God that produces that new life, that allows us to be born again. And transforms us and, and gives, us, uh, gives us salvation. We are born again by the very power of God. And we should be proud of that and be excited to share with others how they too can be born again. Because without being born again, folks, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, When someone claims to be a Christian, when someone claims to be in union with God, in union with Jesus Christ, claims to have Christ living in them, having eternal life, John tells us that they are to examine their character in two ways. One, examine their daily life. um, Is it one of regular sin or is it one of regular righteousness? We talked about that last week. And secondly, we are to examine their love life. Examine their love life. And at the end of verse 10 of our passage last week, John made this statement. Anyone who does not do what is righteous is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Love the Lord and love others. Where have we heard that before? The two greatest commands that Jesus gave that covers all the Ten Commandments. And therein lies the proof of their claim that they are a Christian. Now Christians are genuinely born of God that that manifests that transformation by means of a righteousness and love. That's, what is, that's the manifestation of that rebirth. Those are the two basic behavioral tests, the two measurements of conduct in a believer's life. Now, you'll remember that this isn't the first time John addresses this. It's not going to be the last time in this short epistle. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, he talks about giving them an old command to love. It's not new, it's old. In fact, it's an Old Testament concept. You can go all the way back to Leviticus and and Deuteronomy and God's people are commanded to love others. But John goes on to say it's an old commandment, yes, with a new twist. 
And the new twist is the love of Christ that is now in us. And it's Christ and His love that is produced in us that then gives us His light. And he says in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light, this is chapter 2, but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Brother and sister is referring to fellow believers within the church body. But anyone, he goes on to say in verse 11, who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. This is so important that John keeps coming back to this subject over and over. And each time that he does, he goes just a little bit deeper. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 that God loves God's love has been poured out. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. We have the fruit of the Spirit, do we not? If we've got the Spirit, we've got the fruit, which includes love, joy, peace, and all the rest. Which means then that we have been given in Christ a capacity to love. Because we can't do it on our own. It's more than a mandate. It's a capacity. It's even more than a capacity. It's a character. It should be a characteristic of the children of God. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, that you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And that comes from the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is, is therefore a reason why love for others is a proof of our new life in Christ. And John comes back to this even stronger in chapter 4 of 1 John here, verse 7, where he says, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We'll be looking at that a little bit more uh, in the weeks to come. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If God truly lives in us, if we share the life of God, since God is love, we too will love. God's love, God loves those who are His, and therefore we will love those who are His also. This is actually an evidence of the presence of God who is love living in our life. This is part of Christ living in us. Now, as we begin this passage that we looked at earlier, let's go back to chapter 3 here, in verse, starting in verse 11. He says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is a reminder that this is not a new message. Back in chapter 2, verse 24, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Hang on to that. Keep, keep it up at the forefront. You see, they, they had the truth right at the beginning, when it was given to them by the apostles, particularly uh, the, the apostle Paul. They had the truth about the gospel right. They had the truth about the person of Christ right. They had the truth about sinfulness right. They had the truth about righteousness and obedience right. They had the truth about love right because it was delivered to them by the apostolic preachers. But after some period of time, as we've talked about before, false teachers started in, to infiltrate into the churches and started giving another message. And they sounded so spiritual. And they sounded so knowledgeable. I mean, the Gnostics, that's what it was all about. It's all about knowledge. They sounded so knowledgeable, so brilliant, so right. That the believers started to be persuaded by them. 
our culture today is very much part of the false teachers that Christians are listening to today. And pastors and churches, whole denominations are succumbing to these false teachings, have, have become active participants in false, as false teachers. Love yourself the way you are. You don't have to change anything. In fact, God loves you just the way you are, and you'll never be expected to change. It's okay to hate and be offended by those who think differently than you. After all, you are number one. You deserve whatever you want to be. It's all out there. And there are many Christians that are buying into it lock, stock, and barrel, and John is saying, go back to the truth of the gospel. There is no other truth. The message you heard from the beginning, he says, is that we should love one another. John's telling us that we don't get to hate. <laughs> we, don't, we don't. We don't get to hate. We don't get to get all offended by other people. We don't get to despise people and be angry because someone disagrees with us. In fact, you remember Jesus saying just the opposite in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies. That's hard. Have you ever actually contemplated that, that uh, statement? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's not part of our culture today. We need to go back to the beginning, back to the basics, John says. We need to go back to what you heard when you first heard the truth. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus, like John, identifies this distinguishing mark in the disciples. A new command I give you, love one another. Now that's not the new part. That's the old part. The new part is, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's a whole nother level of love. That's a level of love the world doesn't know about, nor can it understand. It's a magnanimous, self-sacrificing, humble, unassuming love toward brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we have our differences. We have our differences. We have social differences. We have cultural differences. We have political differences. Our culture is teaching us that if, if, if you have these kind of differences, you can't love that person. And that has permeated into churches and has caused all kinds of divisions. Jesus faced the same kind of stuff. Yet he loved. And Jesus said, follow my example. Despite our differences, we need to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must. That's what he said. You must love one another. Then he goes on to say in the same passage, verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Wow. You can tell a true Christian because they love other believers. We're talking about the family of God here. And that's a distinguishing mark of the presence of a loving God. God loves us, and because He loves us, He takes residence up in our lives and manifests that very love through us to others. It's all part of Christ's Christ living in us. It's all part of it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God works in our lives to produce that love. Now, we, I, we find a fascinating verse over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, 
where Peter writes this, Now that you have purified yourselves, he's talking about salvation here, now that you have purified yourselves, you've come, you've heard the truth, you've obeyed the truth, your soul is now purified. Now that you, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another. That's an amazing statement if you think about it. He's saying that this is now who we are. Right? We obeyed the truth. We were cleansed and purified. It has produced in us, past continuous tense, a genuine love for, for one another. It wasn't just a one-time deal in the past, but it continues. And since this has happened, he adds, love one another deeply. That's present tense right now. Love one another deeply from the heart. The Greek word that the NIV translate here as deeply, really has a stronger sense to it. It means to love earnestly, fervently, intensely. Do it with all your heart. We are to love with every fiber of our being. That's how we should be loving one another. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, John says, we should love one another. This is not just a command. This is a God-given capacity that he has given to us. John then moves into a contrast, which is typical of his writings. He contrasts the children of the devil to the children of God. And as we mentioned last week, it's always one or the other. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. And John jumps right into looking at the characteristics of the children of the devil. So let's, let's take a look at those uh, here this morning. The characteristics of the children of the devil, which is in actuality are characteristics that demonstrate the absence of love. And the first one he mentions is murder. <laughs> that's pretty extreme to start with, right? But you've got to admit, that's a fairly good demonstration of the absence of love. Murder, it's the ultimate act of hate. He says in verse 12, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Wow, he jumps right to the chase, doesn't he? Cain, the classic example of a murderer. Cain and Abel, they both had the same parents. Adam and Eve, I assume they were both raised the same way. They had the same influences. They were called by the same God to offer sacrifices. They both brought sacrifices to God. Cain is never presented as an atheist. He's never presented as a hater of God. He's actually presented as a religious man. He's actually a worshiper of God, interestingly enough. They knew no other God at that time. That was the only God that was there. The only God they knew about was the Creator God. Their parents, after all, had personally walked and talked with Him in the cool of the evening. And I'm sure they had told Cain and Abel all about it. So they knew the true God who was Creator. They knew the God who had acted in judgment against their parents because of their sin. They knew the God who had cursed the earth and had put the curse upon the serpent. They knew the God who had pronounced not only the curse, but the blessings on Adam and Eve. They knew the God who had promised that there would be a seed of, of the woman who would eventually bruise the serpent's head. They knew the one true God. They both did. But though Cain may have 
come as a worshiper of God, his heart was not in the right place. We know that God looks at our heart, not our deeds. In fact, it's often those who think they are worshiping the true God that become the true haters and murderers. After all, it wasn't atheists who murdered Jesus, right? It it wasn't atheists who screamed for his blood and demanded that the Romans crucify him. It was religionists, very religious people. People who were in their own twisted way worshiping the God of Israel, worshiping the God who was the very God and Father, the one they sought to kill. Outward ritual, outward religiosity is no proof that a person is born of God. So though Cain was a very religious man, he didn't bring the right sacrifice because he had a self-styled religion. People love to make up their own religion. He had a self-styled religion. I have no doubt that Cain knew he was, he was to bring an animal sacrifice. But rather than bring a sacrifice for which God asked, he decided to bring the fruit of the land which he himself had worked to produce. And so for him, he was going to make his relationship with God based upon what he accomplished. And that, that never works out with God. Never get to God that way. It's not by works, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Cain was a perfect example of this, but he was a religious man. You see, God had already revealed that he wanted an animal sacrifice. Why was that so important? Because that was a picture of the coming Messiah. It was a picture of the coming Messiah because sin requires death. There has to be a sacrifice for sin. There has to be spilt blood. Then we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, after Cain did this horrendous act, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why, are, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I believe that God was ready and willing at that point, after Cain had sacrificed his, his, the fruit of the land, and disobeyed God, I believe God was ready and willing at that point even to forgive Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But God went on to say, if you do not do what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. God gave sin a personality. Satan is that personality. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. And Cain chose Satan over God in that moment. He failed the test of love, love for God and surely love for his brother. You see, the act of murder that Cain committed didn't come out of nowhere. It had to be building From being bothered, perhaps jealous, to dislike, to despising, to hatred, finally murder. Where did that come from? It came from the heart of unrighteousness and evil. John tells us that it was because his own actions were evil. 
and his brothers were righteous. You see, Cain came to despise and hate the man who was truly righteous. Folks, darkness hates light. It always has. They cannot coexist in harmony. Think about that the next time you see a coexist bumper sticker. Satan loves working with emotion, doesn't he? And he pushes, and he pushes, and he pushes them to the extreme, and God is saying, deal with those emotions. Don't listen to your emotions. They often lie. He says, deal with this sin because it's crouching at your door, and if you don't master it, it's going to take over you and master you. And Cain allowed sin to master him. Do not be like Cain, John says, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. It's not just because he killed his brother, but even more so how he killed him. You know the pictures that we see is often he sees a rock in the field, right? Bam, over the head. That's the kind of pictures that are usually portrayed. The Greek word John uses is fadzo. Fadzo, which means to slay, to slaughter, to butcher. And I believe he literally came up behind his brother and butchered him by cutting his throat. It's a classical Greek verb to refer to the slaughtering of animals for sacrifice by cutting their throat, cutting their jugular. It's used in Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 5, to refer to the slaying of sacrificial lambs. That's how they slayed the sacrificial lambs. That's the hatred that grew in Cain's heart because he did not master the sin. Why? Very simple. John says he belonged to the devil. He belonged to the devil. His own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous and evil people hate the righteous. In fact, that's where John goes next in our passage here in describing the characteristics of the children of the devil and it's hatred. It's hatred. Verse 3, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. That's normal. That's par for the course. Darkness and light, right? Evil and righteousness. Then in verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do we know that? Because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. That's the test. That's the test. Remember Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you love? Do you love like Christ loves? Well, you may say, you know, I, I don't hate, hate anyone. Uh, maybe I can't stand them, but, uh, you know, it's not as bad. God says from way back in Genesis 4, be careful. Be careful. Do what is right because sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, just like uh, di- the, the, the emotion of dislike morphs into despising, and despising often morphs into hatred. John writes in verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister, again, we're talking about fellow believers, we're talking about the family, the body of Christ, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Those are harsh words. 
And you know, he says, that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. People with murderous attitudes don't have eternal life because eternal life makes you love. It makes you love, not hate. The only difference between murder and hate is the action. The attitude is the same, right? In God's eyes, hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, that's a precursor of hatred, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He's bringing that into equality with murder. Anger and hatred are the moral equivalent of murder. You just haven't acted it out yet. (laughs) Folks, that's not my opinion. (laughs) It's Jesus' words. John says you shouldn't be surprised that the world hates you. that's, That's normal. That's par for the course. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in the Gospel of John chapter 15, verse 18, when he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You should expect that. Jesus said, look, the world hates me because the world is made up of the children of the devil. That's why the world hates. The devil hates me. The devil loathes and despises me, so his children feel the same. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you. It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why. The world hates you. I believe that there are so many pastors and Christians and churches today who are trying to get the world to love them. How? By compromising the truth. The world's not compromising. You know, there's no real reason for the world to hate us. Have you ever thought about that? Why do they hate us? There's no real reason for the world to hate us. None. We don't harm the world. There is no reason except for the fact that this is a spiritual battle. It always has been. Light versus darkness. Evil versus good. Satan versus God. Hate versus love. They hate We don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. When it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't get to dislike or to not stand someone or or to despise or to hate. Why? Because we have been transformed. We're different. That's the old nature. That's all part of the old nature. Christ has infused us with His love. Again, verse 15, John writes, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. But again, that's no longer who we are. That's not who we are. That was our old sinful self that used to be that way. But John said in verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life, old nature to new nature. We have passed. How do we know that? Because we love one another. That's the evidence. So when it comes to the characteristics of the children of the devil, murder is the worst. Hate comes next. 
And then he gives a third characteristic, and that is, interesting enough, indifference. Indifference. That's kind of, you know, the best you can say about them. You see, not all of them, talking about the children of the devil as John speaks of it, not all of them are driven by the same degree to hate, nor do they all carry out to the extreme and kill. That's, they don't. John again lays this out in a contrast form in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16, this is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. On the other hand, he says in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That's the indifference that John is pointing out, due usually to selfishness. There are those who give to charitable causes. That's that's a good thing. But why are they giving? We're talking generalities, but often they give for a tax break, right? At the end of the year, just before taxes, it benefits them. Often people give to ease their conscience, perhaps, makes themselves feel better. Perhaps it's to receive pats on the back, but whatever the reason may be, good or indifferent or whatever, do they truly give sacrificially? That's what Jesus did, and that's what He has called us to do. Jesus gave His life for us while we still deserve God's wrath. How many people are, going to go, uh, are willing to do that? Listen to verse 17 again. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He's referring mainly to people who are claiming to be believers, people in churches, because there are many in the churches of Ephesus and the surrounding churches that John was a part of at the time, and there are still many, no doubt, in churches today. If anyone has material possessions, if anyone has material wealth, and sees a brother or sister in need, recognizes the need of a brother or sister in Christ, within the body of Christ. This is who John is referring to. If that's the case, you see it, but have no pity on them. They close their heart to them. They close their compassion, their inner parts. It's actually the word for bowels that John uses here. That's the way they express the seed of their emotions, their bowels. In fact, King James Version translated as, who shuts up his bowels of compassion from him. John says, how can the love of God be in that person? If that's their habit, if that's how they regularly are, then the love of God's not in them. It doesn't matter what they claim. It doesn't matter how religious they claim to be or how often they go to church, even how much they give to the church. If they slam the door in the face of the one in need, John's saying, can't be a child of God. Those are the characteristics of the children of the devil, according to John. Murder, hatred, indifference. So you may be asking, so what are the characteristics of the children of, children of God? Well, they're just the opposite aren't they? In fact, there's just one that John mentions that covers everything. Go back to verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Because we love each other. 
We don't want to kill anybody. We don't even hate. That's no longer part of our nature. We want to bring life to those around us. We want to be a source of blessing and encouragement to them. How is that possible? We love them because God first loved us. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 5, God loves, God's love has been poured out, past tense, already done. His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love is already there. It's already there. It should be the source of all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our words, all of our deeds. And coming back to 1 John 3, verse 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what we celebrated here this morning during our communion service. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's true, sacrificial, unconditional love that we call agape. A love that the world doesn't know. A love that an unbeliever cannot express. It's a love that is willing to give up everything because it has so permeated our being. And by the goodness and mercy of God, we have been delivered from our former attitude. And we can now do that. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, if that's what caused my death, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's what John is talking about here. Paul was saying, I'll give my life away getting the gospel to you. Folks, we're to love in that same sacrificial way. We're to love so that we bring life, not death. We're to love so that we bring affection, not hatred. We're to love so that we meet needs sacrificially, not being indifferent. And then in verse 18, the last verse we're looking at here, there's a final statement, which is a command actually to us. Dear children, dear children, little children, beloved children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. This is how he knows, actually in the next verse, verse 19, that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Not only is our love a testimony to everybody around us that we belong to God, but it's an assuring testimony to ourselves. If we're experiencing that love, that's an assurance, another assurance of our salvation. He says, don't just talk the talk. Talk is cheap. Walk the walk. In both word and deed, love as Jesus loved. Agape one another. Let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That is the true and real evidence of the observable nature and character of a true Christian. And this should be encouraging for us. That's who we are now. This is what we can do. And if we're struggling with that aspect, know that the capacity is there. The capacity is there. We need to ask God just to re-infuse us, perhaps, with His love so that we can access that and use that and, and produce the fruit from the fruit of the Spirit that He gave us. Father, this morning, You showed us 
greatest example of that true sacrificial love on your part as you gave your son. Jesus showed us that sacrificial agape love by being willing to go to the cross and giving his life. And you have placed that same love now in our heart. And Father, I pray that daily we will be using the capacity to love, the fullness of that love that we have because of Christ who lives in us, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us, because of the seed, God, your, your seed that is imperishable, that has uh, born in us a new life, a new life of love. Let us show that love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.